Amen. Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. This is the last book of the Old Testament, just prior to the Gospel of Matthew. And we are working our way through this book this summer, and we're on the second to last section in Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 3. What we've been seeing is that God cares about a variety of things, and he raises those issues with his people. He cares that we know that he loves us. He cares that we know that he is a great king who is to be honored. He cares about our families. He cares about uh, right and wrong. He cares about uh, us becoming more like him in being generous givers because he is faithful to us. And tonight we see that he cares about a perfect world and he intends to create it. Let me invite you to consider that from Malachi chapter 3 beginning at verse 13. Hear now the word of God. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and And the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. May he... Write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lift Jesus before us. Help us to see him and help us to delight in him. Help us to be uh, to rest in him. Teach us your word, we pray. 
For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God will create a perfect world. Don't you long for one? Aren't you tired yet of this one? Full of poverty, genocide, war, kidnappings, strange, crazy, out-of-control murders in schools, human trafficking, all these kinds of evils, including cheating on tests in school to get better grades and then leaping ahead of you in the scholarship line. Or maybe backstabbers climbing corporate ladders at work, getting ahead of you, getting the promotion because of their wickedness. Or, or neighbors just doing nasty things to one another. Or frustrated people in their own homes. Christians, aren't you just tired of this world? Pick one of these things. Don't you just wish it would go away? God says, I do. I wish it would go away and I will bring about a new world that works correctly. Where good thrives and evil is crushed. But if that's the case, and it is, then we have to face the issue of judgment. It's not just an Old Testament theme. Jesus puts it as plainly as anyone in the Bible. Take, for instance, Matthew chapter 25 Verses 31 to 34, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes into, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father in heaven, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, Jesus could not be more plain about this. Those whom Malachi calls the righteous and the wicked, Jesus calls the sheep and the goats. And what scares us is the thought that we might be the goats and not the sheep or our loved ones. that we might face eternal punishment and not eternal life. And in this passage, Malachi seeks to warn us, but he seeks to relieve our fears. And so in Malachi, we see three things tonight I want to look with you at concerning the righteous and the wicked. In the first place, we see the accusation against the Lord concerning the righteous and the wicked, verses 13 through 16. And then we see the marks. How do we identify who the righteous and the wicked are? We see the marks of the righteous and the wicked from verse 13 through the end of the chapter. And then we see the destiny of the righteous and the wicked in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Consider those three things. In the first place, this accusation against the Lord concerning the righteous and the wicked. Notice what he says in verse 13. The Lord says, you have said harsh things against me. Their tone is aggressive and hard. It's, it's bitter and cynical. 
And then the, and the people respond to the Lord. Well, what do you mean we've said harsh things? And the Lord says, well, two things. Verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God. What's the profit? And that's the question. Is it worth it to follow the Lord? Some said, no, not at all. It's stupid. It's pointless to serve God is what some had said. When they asked what's the profit, they meant what's the cash value of keeping his commands? How does it really pay to serve the Lord? That's, that's what they've asked. Their conclusion is it doesn't. But the second thing they do is they say this. They're saying it's profitable not to serve the Lord. So at the end of verse 15, evildoers, they say, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Why? They say they're better off because they don't serve the Lord and he lets them get away with it. That's what they're saying. And God's answer to that is what? It is the doctrine of judgment. The day of the Lord is coming when he will judge is what he says. One way people handle the issue of judgment, of course, is to say, well, there's no such thing. They stand on the outside of the Bible and outside of believing people and they say, nope, this is never going to happen. This is, in fact, the first doctrine ever denied in the Bible when Eve was deceived into believing that she would not die if she disobeyed God. We all feel like, I, I sort of wish this wasn't true. Certainly at times. But for those who believe the Bible, we can't say that. But that doesn't make this easy to talk about. The wicked and the righteous are both troubled by this issue. Uh, in, in In Ecclesiastes, the writer writes in chapter 7, verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing." And and he's trying to make sense of that. He's trying to figure that out. I mean, shouldn't we expect God to give long life to the righteous and and cut short the life of the evildoer? Why is it upside down? Abraham wrestled with this question. He he, he struggled. In in Genesis 18, when the Lord appeared to Abraham and began to talk to him about a city nearby that was vile, and the Lord threatened its destruction, Abraham came to God and said, And said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you, Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's what Abraham said to the Lord because he's struggling with this. He's wrestling with it. It's okay for believers to wrestle with the question. God can handle our questions. But that's actually not what they were doing here in Malachi chapter 3. They had gone far from wrestling with God over his providence and and how he worked out what he worked out. They've reached a settled conclusion. And it's a wrong one. And it has made them bitter. And it's made them distrust God. And they've begun to spread malicious slander against the character of God and God says to them you know what I do care about this you have misunderstood me and I'm going to do something about it let me show you how it's worth it to serve me 
And so he tells you. Now, the first thing he does is he distinguishes the righteous from the wicked so that we can do our own self-evaluation and ask ourselves, in which camp are we? And then he tells you the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. And so think then of those two things. In the first place, notice the distinguishing marks. Well, in the first place of the wicked, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, they, they on the one hand, they speak arrogantly against God. He says with proud and harsh words. They're actually more judgmental of God than they are of those whom they're willing to call evildoers. They complain that the evildoers don't suffer, so God must be a paper tiger. He he threatens, but he never really follows through on anything because he doesn't really care. These are arrogant words on their part. And secondly, they don't even see their own sins. How have we spoken against you, they say to God. How have we done that? We don't even, we don't even know our own sin. They, they can see other people's sins. Those evildoers are prospering. They can see what they think is the Lord's sin, and of course it's not. They can't even see their own. How have we spoken against you? And they're self-righteous about it. They say of themselves, what was the point of keeping his charge? What was the profit in keeping his charge? In other words, what, what, was, the, what was the profit of doing what he commands? And, and in saying so, they seem to be saying, we've pretty well done everything God does require of us. We really haven't missed anything. And, and we've done just exactly what God requires of us, just exactly how he requires of it. And so therefore, we deserve payment. We deserve what's coming to us, is what they're saying. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' day who went up to the temple to pray, and they prayed about themselves, Jesus says. God, they said, thank you that I am not like these other people, sinners. How self-righteous they were. But they were also hypocrites. Notice they say, what profit is there in walking in mourning? Uh, that may be a reference to putting on a dark face, acting sad, acting perhaps even repentant. Evidently, there was a kind of outward show going on in their lives. They were, they were just going through a performance of external duties, and their heart wasn't in it. They're just going through the motions. They're hypocrites before God, and they think God owes them. They attend to worship in hopes that prosperity will result from it. They thought godliness was a means of gain. They kind of have this magical view of religion and prosperity that you find even today in, in, in those who purvey the health and wealth gospel. They thought God was a genie in a bottle and their works were what rubbed his belly so that he would give them their three wishes. And because it hadn't paid off and they saw evildoers prospering, and God not dealing quickly and harshly with them, they said, well, from now on, we'll call the arrogant blessed. And if you can't beat them, join them. And that was their whole attitude to God and serving him. That's what characterizes them. Now, what, about, what about the righteous? How are they identified in this passage? 
Notice there's a bunch of things said about them. At verse 16, he turns to them and says, but those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. In the first place, he says, they speak differently. We're not told what they said, but they feared the Lord and they respected him. They had loving thoughts about him. And and perhaps these are even some of the same people who had just spoken harshly about God. And they took to heart the rebuke. And they've been softened. And they begin to speak with one another, it says. They, They meet together to encourage one another. They knew a log in a fireplace burning by itself soon loses its heat. But throw a few logs together and they keep each other going. It's like what the writer in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 said when he exhorted us, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Jesus' return, we get together. What are we doing when we get together? What's happening, friends, at our meeting places? They're a foretaste. Our meals in one another's homes and at dinner even after worship, they are celebrations and prefigurations of the glory that will one day be when we will never hide from one another, never tire of one another, and never wonder if it's worth it to serve the Lord. We gather and we celebrate. They feared the Lord and they spoke to one another and they encouraged one another. And God says, what? I see them. The Lord paid attention and heard them, it says. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord. Why does he write a book? God doesn't forget anything. I mean, he isn't absent-minded. He, he doesn't have to-do lists and then lose them. And he, he doesn't have a calendar of events that he just sort of forgets about and doesn't pay attention to. He doesn't forget his people. Why does he write a book and tell you he writes a book? Not for his sake, but for our sake. Most of the people back then would probably have never owned a book in their entire life. Your city might have owned a book with the record of the names of its citizens, The tax collector might have owned a book with the record of the taxpayers and those who owe. And believers did have a book. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Bible, though most of them wouldn't have their own copy of it. Precious and important things, never to be forgotten, were in those books. God says, I have a book, and in it are the names of my people. And there isn't a single one who will ever be forgotten by me. So he's trying to give them a word of assurance and encouragement to persevere in walking with him, even though life might stink. And then he says, I claim them as my treasured possession. And you can bank on this promise, he says. Though the wicked say, where is the treasure in serving God? The righteous can say, This is unbelievable. I am the treasure that God values. We are his treasure. They shall be mine in the day I take up my treasured possession. He's trying to encourage you. Hold on. He's holding on to you. And God promises them further to spare them 
in the coming judgment. He says, um, notice again the language here at the end of verse 17, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And he does not deal with us as our sins deserve. And my, my favorite illustration of this in, in one way is this. It, it's about that story of the pioneers who were crossing the wide plain seeking to go a long distance in order to do some homesteading. They traveled in covered wagons pulled by oxen, and it was very slow going, and they had passed a river a day back. But now they see in the far west the smoke of a prairie fire, and it is headed their way. And everybody is afraid except one man knows exactly what to do. He lights the prairie on fire behind them, and when it is burned off, they walk back on top of what has already been burned. So there's nothing to burn when the fire comes raging at them. And one girl cries out in terror, Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? And the leader replies, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. That is a picture of the believer who is safe in Christ. As one hymn writer put it, on him, almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. The fires of judgment reached Christ upon a cross. So all who are in Christ are spared. And the Lord spares his people as a man. Spares his own son. Friends, he concludes then, verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. There are only two kinds of people, he says, the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who do not. And that, he says, will become abundantly clear on the day when God visits us. But it is a fact already, even today. You are one or the other. What marks your life, friends? So these are the marks of the wicked and the righteous. What about their destinies? He finishes with that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. First, he takes on the destiny of the wicked. Notice the language. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble, he says. I once heard about an agnostic farmer who uh, just despised Christians and the editor of his local newspaper, it was a Christian newspaper, and so he, he wrote to him, he wrote, in defiance of your God, I plowed my fields this year on Sunday. I fertilized them on Sunday. I planted them on Sunday. I cultivated them on Sunday and I reaped them. On Sunday, this October, I had the biggest crop I have ever had. How do you explain that? The editor replied, God does not always settle his accounts in October. But there is, he says, a day coming when God will settle his accounts. And it is an unbearable 
day. Would you look at this, friends? He says, it will be burning like an oven. And the arrogant and the evildoers will come to stubble. It will set them ablaze, he says. Previously, in a passage we looked at before, he had spoken of the Lord Jesus as a refiner's fire. And and as a fire, he will purify his people and save them. But here he speaks of the Lord coming as a fire who will destroy the wicked. And it will be final. Notice the language. That day will leave them neither root nor branch. No root or branch will be left to grow. There is no second chance. There is no future restoration after this judgment day. And that troubles us. Why so unbearable and final a judgment? Why? And one answer is this. One answer is this, that the significance of sin is to be measured by the one against whom the sin is committed. Friends, if I punch my friend, he'll get mad at me. And he might punch me back. But if I, if I hit a cop, I'm going to jail. If I throw my fist at the face of the President of the United States, I will be strung up on charges of treason and locked away for a very long time. Why? Because the greater the subject, the greater the sin. The one against whom you offend and I offend is infinitely holy. How great is a sin against an infinitely holy being? What does it deserve? It deserves an unbearable and final and full accounting and punishment, an infinite punishment. But none of us in this room need ever experience that. The prophet Ezekiel says this about God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? There's no reason. Just repent and turn from your sins to Christ to save you. And you will be rescued is what he says. And so we see on the one hand the destiny of the wicked. And there is no escape if they will not repent. But we see finally the destiny of the righteous in verses 2 and 3. What is that destiny? It is righteousness, it is rejuvenation, it is rejoicing, and it is a great reversal. It is four things, friends. It is righteousness. Notice the the language here when he says at verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The Son of Righteousness will rise. What is that or who is that? And I argue it's Christ. Christ will rise upon them. Why do I say that it's Christ? Because he is elsewhere called the righteous one. God is elsewhere called a sun and shield for his people. And when John the Baptist's father prophesied in Luke chapter 1 verse 78 about John the Baptist's ministry in light of the coming of Jesus' ministry, he said this, alluding to this verse, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Jesus is the sunrise, the sun of righteousness, and the rays of his righteousness will shine on his people. The beams of his righteousness will be like light piercing our darkness, like warmth piercing a bitter chill, which means that Jesus makes all things right. Are the righteous, we might ask, are the righteous righteous because they serve God? Or do they serve God because they are righteous? Are the wicked wicked because they do not serve God? Or do they not serve God because they are wicked? Well, friends, the answer is this. The righteous serve God because they are righteous. And the wicked do not serve God because they are wicked. How then shall the wicked be made righteous? Can a leopard change its spots? Never. But God can do what we cannot do. The only way anyone ever becomes righteous in the sight of Lord is this. The son of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings and shine his righteousness upon them. Christ, the righteous one, must make us righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that what in him we could become the righteousness of God. He gets what's ours and he dies for it. And we get what's his, all his perfect obedience. And we are accepted for it. The first thing the righteous look forward to in their eternal destiny is that they will be righteous before God. They will be right with God. As they are now. They one day will be, and it will be on display, but they will get rejuvenation as well. There will be healing in his wings, the Bible says. Like a, like a bird covers its young with its wings, so the righteousness of God will cover us, and it will heal us. He will heal us. It will be, bring healing in every way. And you and I will not taste all of that healing in this life, but we are assured that all pain, all sorrow, And all tears will one day be wiped away. And we will enjoy that healing and we will rejoice. We will, he says, go out leaping like calves from the stall. Like like calves who've been cooped up in their stall all winter. And now the gate is pulled back and they go leaping out into the beautiful spring sunshine and field. They leap for the freedom he provides and they leap with joy. So you will be filled with joy and there will finally be for the destiny of the righteous there will be not only that there will be a great reversal notice the language then in verse three you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet he says what's he saying there well throughout history the wicked have shoved the righteous aside and into the corner and walked all over them but on the final day the righteous he says will triumph in Christ because our king is on his throne above all things and we're united to the king and we will sit with him on his throne the bible goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 do you not know that the saints will judge the world do you not know that the saints will judge angels the bible says What a great reversal, friends. And God will be vindicated. It will be unmistakable that he cares 
about creating a world where good thrives and evil is crushed. And Jesus comes to bring a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And any and all who trust in Jesus get eternal life with him in his home. Trust. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you that you are a God who warns us, but a God so gracious and patient and kind and generous, a God who provides a Savior for us and offers us a way of escape and everlasting delight. We pray that you would teach our hearts to delight in Jesus, in whom it is secured. We pray that you would teach our hearts to fear and hate sin and wickedness and to turn from our evil ways and to be found in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.